With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. What's up, y'all? Jared Sandler here. And in a second, we're going to bring you episode 34 of the Just a Sec conversation. First, though, just want to remind you, it is easy and free and quick to subscribe to this channel. It might not really do a whole lot for you, but it really helps me. And so I'd appreciate it at the very least if you would consider subscribing to my YouTube channel. Take a look. You can check out all the different uh, elements of content I try and provide, and, and hopefully it's something you find to be beneficial, uh, enjoyable, uh, something that uh, can pass time, and uh, would certainly love if you would consider giving that thumbs up and, and maybe clicking the subscribe button uh, on the channel. All right, episode 34 of Just a Set Conversation was a really cool one for me. Uh, I'm Jewish, and I grew up playing a lot of sports, and there really weren't a lot of Jewish athletes. You, you ask any Jewish kid who loves sports or, or plays sports, and chances are they can name at least a few of the, the Jewish athletes in various sports, if not the entire roster, because it's not a long roster. And for me growing up, maybe the most prominent, even though we heard the Sandy Koufax stories, the most prominent active Jewish athlete, certainly baseball player, was Sean Green. And some Jewish athletes, they don't really embrace it publicly, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Sean always did, and I would always follow Sean Green. So when I was thinking of ideas of people with whom to talk, I, I randomly was like, hey, I wonder if I can talk to Sean Green, thinking I talked to him about his great baseball career in which he made a couple of all-star teams and, and really get into talking with him about uh, you know being looked at as a Jewish baseball player and, and the, the pros and cons. And then, lo and behold, I find that Sean Green is an incredibly bright guy who is now – uh, you know, post-baseball, fully engaged in entrepreneurial pursuits and, and not just using his money or his name, but like in the trenches. And he's got such an interesting story. And I was like, I got to reach out to him. And thankfully, uh, I was able to, to get in touch with him. And he was generous enough to give me some time. Uh, we talk about growing up, uh, baseball, the the evolution of his career. He's a really, really introspective person, and, and hearing his thoughts on just various stages of his career and his life was was fascinating for me. Uh, we get into the business side, and, and at the end, we do touch on uh, the the Judaism part, but definitely not a, a central theme because there's so much to him. Anyway, uh, I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I know I certainly did. Uh, here you go, episode 34, the Justice Set conversation with. Retired Major League All-Star and entrepreneur, Sean Green. 
All right, Sean. So the first question I like to ask people, and you can take it in whatever direction you'd like, but when you think back to your childhood, what are some of the things that stand out to you about uh, your hobbies, your your interests, uh, personality, whatever comes to mind when you think back to your childhood, what, uh, what do you think about? Yeah, I was really into sports. Um, like, uh, probably like most, most kids end up playing in the big leagues or other professional sports. And I loved, uh, baseball is number one, but I also loved basketball and soccer, soccer until I was about nine or 10. And, uh, yeah, I worked hard and, you know, wanted to, wanted to do well, whether it was school, whether it was sports or, um, whether I was just playing a board game, I always, you know, did my best and wanted to try to compete and win. Now, your dad, Ira, was a basketball player. You mentioned, uh, uh, you know, an interest in basketball. But was it uh, was it your dad who who kind of helped instill maybe a love of sports in you, or, or did you get it uh, from both parents? Uh, you know, what what was that dynamic like with a, a, a dad who was an athlete himself? Yeah, it was definitely my dad. He uh, he loved sports, and to this day, he he loves uh, sports, particularly baseball. But um, yeah, he played college basketball in Chicago for DePaul and. Um, and for me, he kind of just got me exposed to different sports. They, my mom wouldn't let me play football, but, um, they, you know, basketball, baseball, and and soccer was pretty popular where I was uh, growing up at the time in San Jose. And, and so I, I really gravitated towards baseball. I love to, to swing a bat and, and play catch and all that stuff. So, um, that's where I ended up excelling because I, I, uh, did more and more of it, um, as I got, um, older and, and and more uh, appreciative of of the sport. I, I I think I read that you you moved around a little bit growing up. When you look back on that experience of, of uh, uh, growing up, just you know living in different parts of the the country and, and having to move, what are some of the things that some of the positive takeaways or, or influences that maybe helped shape you as opposed to you know perhaps someone who born and raised in one city and and they never leave. Yeah, you learn to to adapt. I think you learn to like, you know integrate with um, new new groups of people, which I think helped me as I went on um, into the minor league straight out of straight out of high school. Um, so yeah, you, you you adjust quickly. It's kind of where I for me, I was born in Chicago and left there when I was a year old and went to New Jersey really until you know kind of through the preschool years. So everything was compartmentalized into the different um, you know years of childhood and then I went to grammar school in San Jose and then when I was uh, basically at junior high age I moved to to Southern California so I think it was easier in that sense that it wasn't like I think it'd be tougher if it was in the middle of of high school or you know and right in the middle of uh, you know third or fourth grade when you're kind of in the middle of grammar school and I I think it's easier to do it when kids are transitioning anyway at at, uh, the different age levels. All right, Sean, I went to USC and, and was fortunate to to spend some time with the baseball program there, and I think we beat Stanford, you know, we play them three times a year, I, 12 times, maybe twice, uh, and uh, I don't know that we, we won a game in Palo Alto, and, and USC used to uh, be, you know, one of the, the, the college baseball blue bloods and, and hopefully uh, can get back there, but, but Stanford has been and, and really remains – uh, a, a really strong program. What was that decision like for you to go there? Uh, you know, we're going to get into your entrepreneurial pursuits. And so, you know, obviously Stanford, not just a great 
baseball program, but academically a, a really strong school. How much did that factor into it, and, and, and what ultimately led you to Stanford and, and getting a chance to play for that legendary program? Yeah, when I was in junior high and high school, I was following college, college baseball pretty closely. So there was, um, I think, in the in the mid '80s, around you know the '84 Olympics and beyond. There was some some pretty <laughs> exciting players. You know, in the early '80s, it was McGuire, Bonds. Um, I remember I, I loved Oda B. McDowell at, at Arizona State, and then and then when they moved on to the to the professional ranks, and it was Rob Ventura and, and guys like that, Ed Sprague at Stanford. And, and and Stanford was really good in the late 80s, won back-to-back championships. And uh, I excelled in school and worked really hard, and, and grades were important to me. So, um, you know, they were, at the time, the top program, and, and that's where I wanted to go. I mean, I also I took recruiting trips to Miami, to Arizona State, Arizona, and SC. Um, but Stanford – in my mind, and I think a lot of people's minds had, you know, that the academic, um, you know, the a- academic side was was unique to them for a school that was successful in sports as well. I think that to this day, I think in all sports, it actually gives them a big advantage because in the top scholar athletes, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, um, you know, Stanford's really high on, on the list, so they're able to recruit. You know, they they won't be able to get the, you know, the the weaker academic athletes in like some of the powerhouses they also have the advantage of getting in um you know the top scholar athletes from all over the country and and even the world i'm curious sean i I get asked this a bunch uh do you think that an athlete's intellect uh is important or can you still be a star but you know maybe really struggle uh you know, I, I don't know how you'd measure it, SAT, whatever. And, and, and my answer is always, yeah, you know, you can be uh, a great athlete and, and not really be smart at all. But for the athletes who do have that, do have that, that you know, the, the ability between the ears, uh, I do think it's an advantage. And I guess I'm curious, you know, you, you've always been referred to by teammates uh, when they, they talk about you as a really bright guy. You, you went to Stanford. I, mean, what, I guess what's your perspective on that? Because I, I know that great athletes come in all shapes, sizes, makeups, and whatnot. But uh, how do you think that that maybe gives an athlete an advantage? Yeah, I mean, I think intelligence is measured in a lot of different ways. And if you want to just do straight, you know, book smart. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's always helpful to to have intelligent intelligent players, uh, especially on the team. Guys like play with a lot of them. Guys like Craig Council. Um, Rob Mentura, Carlos Delgado, really, really bright guys. Um, but I think, you know, you look at guys that maybe, you know, perception wise were considered, you know, not too smart. And it, when I played with these, some of these guys, they were actually, their baseball smarts were, you know, really, really high. And there's their awareness of what they were trying to do, you know, as a hitter were, have smarter, smarter than some of the guys that, you know, might be, you know, could have been a doctor or lawyer or whatever. These guys had that, that baseball intelligence. So I think, um, it's all you measure a lot of, especially in baseball guys come from all different cultures and didn't have, a lot of them didn't have the education or the opportunity that, that people here have in the U S and, and then there's a you know, disparity of what type of opportunities kids in the U S have. So I think, uh, 
yeah, I, I think you, you prefer to have more educated players because they tend to get into less trouble and, and are, um, you know, in a lot of ways more coachable and different things. But uh, I think when it comes down to performing on the field, you know, it can be measured in a lot of different ways. All right, so you you get drafted by the Blue Jays and you make your major league debut at the very end of the the ninety three season, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But and and that was a year, the nineteen ninety three year. Uh, the Blue Jays beat the Phillies in the World Series. Now I don't think uh, you played, but you you know you're you're a part of the organization. You've You've already been a part of the big league team. I, do, did you get any sort of experience from being around those guys? And, and were you present during the playoff run? I, I'm not sure what it was like then. I know now guys who uh, maybe aren't active or, are still around. Did you get those same opportunities to be a part of that run? No, I mean, I got called up um, right before the, the team clinched. And so I was only up for a couple weeks. And I... I didn't get on the field until the day after, you know, we clinched against Milwaukee. Um, so I only got, you know, a handful of at bats and I didn't get any hits and wasn't there for the, the playoff run. Uh, I was playing winter ball at that time in there, the fall league. Um, but I was following closely and just to be around it, to, you know, be able to, you know, pour some champagne on, on some of the guys, um, you know, after the, the clinch, of the division was, was pretty exciting and, and was, you know, an incredible opportunity. I did get a world series ring, um, which is, which is cool, but you know, it's, it's different than having had the opportunity to, to play in the world series and, and actually go through that, um, that type of experience, which I, unfortunately I never did. So, and you were 20 years old in 93 in 94, you got a, a another, a uh, little bit of of experience at the big league level, and then '95 was the year where you really solidified yourself as an everyday player. the The minor league journey and and the climb to the big leagues is uh, is is so tough, and and such a small percentage of people actually you know get to the big leagues and and then get to the point where they get an opportunity to play every day. and And fast forward to your career, get a chance to play more than ten years. But when you think about you know maybe that the 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 struggles, the challenges until that 95 season, when you really did get the chance to, to play every day, what, what are some of the things that, that stand out to you? I don't know, frustrations or, or, you know, maybe important moments, conversations that really helped you take the steps you needed to take. Yeah. Everyone who gets to that level, major league level and, and has a extended career, there's a lot of ups and downs. And for me, you know, the first, I played, so I came up 92 as my first season of minor leagues. And I played in the, in a really challenging league, the Florida state league, which is high a, uh, and, you know, I was more of a leader at the time. So, um, you know, I kind of held my own, didn't only hit one home run, but, you know, hitting the two seventies, which they considered pretty good at that for a 19 year old in that league. And then went to double a and did a little bit better, ended up breaking my thumb and missing, you know, a big chunk of the season. Um, uh, and then got called up in September, which is really the contractual um, part of of my when I signed and out of high school, I got the opportunity to get called up. Um, so it wasn't as much performance based at that point. And then '94, I got off to a great start. Is I had a manager that uh, Bob Didier in AAA. He comes from a, a long baseball, you know, old baseball family with Mel Didier, who was a longtime scout. 
Um, and he really believed in me. I bat all of a sudden I was batting third in the, on the team and uh, as opposed to batting sixth the first couple of years. And I got off to this incredible start. And one thing I did, I was playing in Syracuse and it was freezing cold. And I told myself to start the season, I said, you know what? It's going to be freezing every day. And I'm just not going to one time, I'm not going to complain. I'm not going to complain about how cold it is. And I just, you know, I was 21 years old and that was just my attitude. So I'm just going to go out. Everyone's going to be complaining and I'm going to use that as an edge. And sure enough, I got, I think I had a multi-hit game the first like seven games of the season and got off to this great start. And um, I was hitting about 380 a couple, about you know, six weeks, two months into the season, got called up, uh, played up there for a month and, and it didn't play very much. You know, I had like 30, a little over 30 at bats. So um, struggled and, and I was happy to go back down to the minor leagues because uh, I had you know, good friends there. I would look at the scoreboard and I'd see 380 as opposed to, you know, 0.091, <laughs> which I was hitting when I was up in Toronto. And, uh, and I was happy to go down to AAA and ended up, ended up finishing strong and won the batting title. And that was, for me, that was the year that I, I kind of got, got that confidence. Even though I struggled in the big leagues, I knew it was, hey, if I had a chance to play, I could compete at this level. But um, to be able to win a batting title in AAA and bat third, and all of a sudden I, I hit 13 home runs, um, as opposed to, you know, the one, the year one, my first year and fourth next year. So all of a sudden I was kind of building up to being um, the type of player that they expected when they drafted me. And, and that was a big turning point. All right. So Sean, you, you eventually, you know, really establish yourself in Toronto and, and you, you make an all-star team in 99. You, you know, that, that came, uh, you know, that, that wasn't your only good year. You had a, a, you know, a number of good years there. And then you got to do what I think a lot of, kids if they really map out their their dream path they get to do and that's play for uh your hometown team and you know i know we already talked about moving around but but eventually spent a lot of time in southern california and you got a chance to play for the dodgers and and not just play you had some really good years with the dodgers i'm curious what was that experience like and and why was that important because you know you also hear guys who say that they you know, they don't want to play in their hometown because of distractions. You wanted to. You embraced this. Why and, and what was that experience like? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It was uh, it was weird. The first year was really tough because I, you know, I had had a couple big years in Toronto and 98, 99, and then they, um, agent, hey, we're, I was a year away from free agency. They said, we're going to sign you know, sign me and Carl Delgado, sign you guys to long-term deals or trade you. Um, Cause we don't want you to walk in a year like Robbie Alomar had just left. And uh, I think that was, you know, a big blow, not only for the organization, but for the fans and all that to have a player leave like that, just walk away without getting anything returned. So, um, so it gave me a little bit of leverage and I said, yeah, I, I'm not willing to sign a long-term deal here. Teams up for sale. You know, we couldn't compete at the time with financially with the Yankees. We were so close to being able to, compete with them but we just couldn't get that one or two extra players that we needed um and so my attitude was look i'll you know i'll I'll get traded but i had the leverage to go kind of where i wanted because um, someone wasn't going to give up their prospects to have a player walking in here so they gave you a window to negotiate a long-term deal and and that's uh that gave me the leverage to to kind of opt for la and the, the first year was hard because i in Toronto, that was my baseball world, and I come home in the off season to Southern California, and now all of a sudden those two worlds merged together. So I'd be sitting at home, and it felt like the off season, but then I had to go prepare mentally to go play games each day. 
and that, that was a bit of a, a challenge and also the, the pressure I think of you know all my family and friends you know seeing the ups and downs when you're playing across the country or across the continent um, you know they kind of see more of the highlights and, and not as much the I guess the, the downtimes so that was a bit of a challenge and you know, I sort of worked through it had a had a, a struggle that year my I went from hitting, you know, over 40 home runs to hitting in the mid 20 home runs. My batting average dropped quite a bit. Um, so I was feeling, I was definitely feeling the, the effects of it as well as having a big contract that I was trying to justify it, you know, with a, in front of a new organization, a new crowd and all that stuff. Um, so that year was really tough. And then the next year, 2001 was when I came back and, and was kind of able to reset everything. I was more adjusted to the, new lifestyle playing at home and uh that's when I, I took off again all right so it was in that year that next year uh 2001 you hit 49 home runs and i think i saw you hit 49 maybe with two games to spare was 50 did that mean anything to you or like those last two games or you know do you have teammates saying hey sean you know one more like or, or did it not really matter at all uh to to get to that 50 mark on the the home run side Oh yeah, and I was trying for a while. I was I played uh, like about a week before the season. You know, one of the bummers was um, I, I actually got really, I was really streaky as a hitter, especially with home runs, and I got really hot. And then nine eleven hit, and you know, obviously the whole world stopped. You know, rightfully so. Uh, and then came, when I came back from there, it, it took a while to sort of find find the timing again because we took a week off and. Uh, uh, I think right before 9-11, the three games before, I, I hit like maybe three or four home runs in St. Louis. Um, so I was really locked in. And and so, yeah, of course, I was trying to hit get to 50. In San Diego about a week before, you know, the, the second to last series of the year, I hit one. I, I mean, it was hard to get out of that old stadium to center field. And I, I smoked a ball to center, hit off hit off the top of the wall um, for a double. And, and, you know, that would have been out of most parks. And, and I was trying to do it in San Francisco as well. And, and uh, the last day of the season, I went into the, I went in there hitting 299 with 49 home runs and ended up going over three against uh, Kirk Reader. So ended up didn't make it to 300 and didn't make it to 50. But, you know, still still happy with the year, of course. But um, it would have been nice to get there. All right, I got a, a couple more baseball questions and then want to want to get to Greenfly. You, you had a four-home run game, Sean. Not many people have done that. What I mean, what? What what the heck is that day like? I know you mentioned uh, being streaky, but you know even some of the streakiest players don't get to uh, hit four in a game. I, I don't, I'm sure you you get asked about this a ton, but what are the things that stand out to you about that day and, and that experience? Yeah, I mean it's it's really a more than just a day where it's like the week before I was really struggling. So this is after hitting the 49 home runs, the first you know 40 some you know about 40 games of the season. So about a quarter of the way through the season, I was hitting. I had three home runs and I was hitting like in the two thirties and the week before I was getting booed at home and we played uh, the, the Mets and the Expos and I was 0 for 18 until my last at bat at home and, you know, hit a double off the wall and that sort of broke me out of that slump. But I was just happy to go on the road to, uh, you know, not be getting booed anymore because it was the first time in my career I ever got booed at home. And uh, so we go to Milwaukee and I was starting to find my swing and was working on some things. And, and the first game in Milwaukee, I hit two home runs. And I basically decided I'm not going to stride anymore. I was overstriding, so I kind of cut all that down. And 
and that's when it started to, to show up in the games. I hit two home runs. I'm like, okay, I'll kind of get, get it back. The next day I hit a triple, um, and we won, scored, and we won one nothing. So I was starting to contribute, and I was feeling good again. And the next day, we're facing a lefty. So it's always you'd always rather face a righty as a left-handed hitter. And um, this guy I'd faced many times before, Glendon Rush. And first at bat, I got to a full count and just sort of you know, squeaked a, a ground ball down the first baseline for a double. So, you, you know, you feel good to get that first hit, especially against the lefty. It's like you relax a little bit. And then the next at bat, I, I knew based on the sequence of the at bat before, I, I knew he'd come in, try to throw me fastballs in. Um, and he did. And you know, I, I got just enough of it. That was a, the weakest of the four home runs, and I hit it out to right. And then he came out of the game, and a rookie right-handed came in. Um, and, you know, I, I hit – hit the next one out to, to right center. At this point, I'm getting more and more dialed in and confident. And I was just so relaxed that day. And then facing the, the same guy, um, my next at bat, he threw a, a, a two-seam fastball away. And as, as you're hitting all these home runs and like having success, it gets easier because you kind of know how they're going to pitch you. You know, I knew I hit a slider out before I, he's going to throw me, he's going to throw me, stay away from me. Now I could just hit, you know, a bunch of home runs in the series, and sure enough, he did, and I hit, hit a home run to, to left field. And then, of course, I'm trying to hit a fourth home run, <laughs> and a new, a, a new pitcher comes in. He's probably the hardest ball I hit the whole day. He threw a fastball. It was below my knees, pretty low. I couldn't get in there, but I, I hit a base hit up the middle. Um, so at this point now, I have three home runs, a double, and a home run, and my manager, Jim Tracy, said, hey, why don't you, you know, go ahead and shower up. You're heading to Arizona. And I said, well, you know, a couple guys can get on. Let me just stand there, see if I get another shot at it. So, he, you know, he did. He was just happy that I was finally hitting the ball again. So he was going to do whatever I wanted at that point. <laughs> and so I stayed in the game. And, uh, yeah, longtime, you know, Ranger and, and star there, Adrian Beltre, hit a home run with two outs in the ninth inning, got me another at-bat, and sure enough, I hit it out. But what was kind of crazy is they had a promotion the Dodgers had a promotion where a fan could pick a player to hit for the cycle. And if the player hits for the cycle that day, then the fan was a million dollars. And and we didn't really know much about this as players. And of course we didn't know who they picked, but I guess the woman picked me that day. And had I, had I missed home plate, she would have won a million dollars. So I'm happy I didn't have to make that decision or I didn't know about it. <laughs> Cause that would have been, you know, that would be kind of a tricky one, but what's crazy is when we go to Arizona and the first step, that first pitch I saw from Kurt Schilling, I hit out and then had two more hits the, the next day, and then the, the following day I had two more home runs. So I went from hitting, having three home runs in a year to hitting nine home runs in the next in five games. That's, so it was like that's this crazy. crazy, crazy streak. And then what's, what's weird is later in the year, and then I kind of got cold for a while, heated back up, and then against the Angels, I hit four home runs and four consecutive at-bats later in the year, but it was over two games. So it, like, it didn't really get, kind of got overlooked, but it was just like this crazy year of, of you know, 12 home runs one month and two home runs the next month. And so it was a lot of ups and downs, but you know, it worked out and ended up being a, you know, one of my, one of my best seasons. Hey Sean, when I think back to the, the blue Jays teams you're on with Carlos Delgado, I, I don't know why, I guess just the way my mind works. The, the, one of the first things I always think about is that, you know, nowadays so many hitters, I'd say, you know, the majority of hitters have an open batting stance to some degree but I, I guess, you know, in your Blue Jays days, maybe it wasn't as prevalent. Now, I was young, and, and maybe I'm, I'm totally, uh, you know, doing a, a poor audit of Major League base, uh, Baseball batting stances. But you and Carlos Delgado both had, 
you know, not these like um, amazingly open stances, but but open batting stances to to varying degrees. And I guess I'm just curious, how did you get to that point where you found a comfort in, in your batting stance when maybe that that particular style, if you will, was not uh, as commonplace then as it is now? Yeah, I mean that, that's a, that's a question I could have a very long answer, but you know, <laughs> it, it kind of your, your swing and your approach evolved a lot. And so for me, in '97, I got benched and um, had issues with Cito Gaston's manager. He didn't want to play me very much, and this whole thing. And anyway, so I started just working on my sit on. This is a time where I could kind of revamp things, and I, I always had this tendency to really close my front shoulder when I took a stride. Um, to the point where I, I wasn't able to get to the inside pitch because I closed up so much. And no matter what I did, I would close up. I'd move off the plate, move on the plate, try to, but nothing works. So I finally said, look, my shoulder wants to go all the way here, and I want it to be square. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to open my lower half up so now my shoulder can go where it wants to go, and it's now, it's now square to the pitcher, if that makes sense. And that's, that's what I did, and, and that's really when I started. That's when things took off for me. All of a sudden, the, the strike zone made – more sense. I, I recognize pitches for what they were, as opposed to chasing pitches off the plate away and, and not and freezing on pitches inside. Um, and then what it, what it also did is it kind of helped my swing. Where now all of a sudden my my lower half could I created more torque because my my upper half could be closed and my lower half could start to open early. Um, and that's that's really when I learned how to hit for hit, hit for power. All right, Sean. So now you are—you uh, could probably just sit on your backside and and be retired uh, and enjoy the heck out of it. But that—that uh, that is not at all uh, what you're doing. You—you you have transitioned from from baseball player to entrepreneur uh, with Greenfly. Before we get into the origin of Greenfly, if you don't mind, in, in your words, how would you describe what uh, what you all do at Greenfly? Yeah, so it's evolved. Um, we've been around about six, seven years now. Um, seven years if you count the very early prototype. But we're we're an enterprise software platform um, where brands can collaborate um, content with their with their advocates. So they basically like they could pull content in from their advocates via our app, or they could distribute content um, from their you know from their hub out to all of their advocates for them to share on social and then we track it all. So it's basically this two-way flow of content between a brand or a sports league or team media company to the people um, that they want to get the content through on the social or pull in to use um, however they want on their own social channel. All right. Now, how did this all come about? In reading up on, on this, you know, I know some athletes, they get they lend their name, they lend their money to a project and, and, you know, they learn enough to where they can speak about it, but this seems to be a passion for you. And, and this was, this was your idea, I think with, with a buddy. Uh, so you are not just attached to it, uh, nominally. I mean, you are, this is, this is your baby. So how did this all come about and, and the entrepreneurial desire, how, how did that all originate? Yeah, I always loved tech. Like I was always, I was really into it. And as I told you, I spent my childhood, early, you know, the grammar school years in the Silicon Valley as things were, you know, Atari and Apple and all these, you know, things were close to home for me. Um, and even in spring trainings, I would buy a book, you know, on 
coding or, you know, Final Cut Pro or FileMaker. And, and I'd start to, some of the things I'd get through and, and learn actually use, like FileMaker, I used to create a database to keep track of all the pictures and stuff. But other things like coding, I was like, oh, it's, it's too intense for me to try to focus on this when I'm exhausted after, you know, playing baseball all day long. So, um, but I always had this passion for it. And, you know, when I was done playing, I just, I just had this idea. It was more of like a video Q and a platform to say, Hey, we're going to, you know, ESPN or someone wants to get content, you know, Kobe Bryant says Achilles heel. And then, um, they're talking to the one or the one or two people that are in, you know, in game or in studio or talking about, it. it'd be great to be able to say, Hey, what about team doctors? What about, um, other players that have had that injury? And, uh, and that's kind of where the idea came from to create an app and a backend that would facilitate that. And so like, like a lot of, uh, you know, like a lot of tech companies, it kind of starts in, in one area and, and morphs. And, and so what happened is my cousin, Daniel Kirshner came in, super smart guy, a you know, former president of the Harvard Law Review. And he was in LA working for Activision Blizzard. And, uh, I had built this prototype, you know, outsourced it and just kind of built a prototype of what I just described. And he was getting more and more intrigued. I wanted someone to, to run it. Cause I knew even in baseball, my personality type is I like to be a, a co-pilot and didn't want to be the one to try to, I knew my limitations and, and what I was good at. And I was, um, and I didn't want to be a CEO, but I wanted to be, you know, founder and, and super involved. And so he got more and more excited about it. And it was, was my first choice for someone to run it, but I wasn't going to tell him, Hey, you should, uh, quit this great job you have and come do a startup. But eventually he got to the point where he was so excited about the concept and through his research and everything that he came on board about six years ago and really reshaped the business to being more of this collaboration tool. So you think of Slack, a lot of people, a lot of companies use Slack to, for communication with their, um, with their employees and we're a tool like that, but it's for, um, content and a brand or leagues, advocates, players, celebrities, staff, whatever it is. And, uh, and that's really what he kind of pushed the, the vision of the company to be. You know, I was going to ask you, because I, I had read, you mentioned, you know, what you, you shared earlier about, uh, you know, liking the, the role of wingman, but not the guy. And uh, I, 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 I took a few entrepreneurial classes when I was in school. One of the first things they talked about was, you know, building a team and, and, and knowing your role within that team. And, and in order to do so though, you need to be able to have a, an ability to self-reflect and, and do so honestly and, uh, and not, you know, just, uh, in your, in your mind, we all probably have inflated senses of self to some degree, but like the, the, the closer you can hit the target, the better off you'll be. And I know for me as a broadcaster and, and I tell kids, uh, hey, you've got to be able to look in the mirror and identify this is a strength and this is a weakness. Because then you if you can't identify weaknesses, then you're not going to necessarily know where to make those improvements. And I, I don't know. It just seems like this is something that you possess, the the ability and the willingness to have self-reflection, uh, which I know is an easy thing to say, but maybe harder in practice. I, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling. I'm sorry, but I, I, I guess I'm curious your thoughts on how important that has been for you, whether as an athlete or, or you know, really, I guess this was born out of the, the entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I, I learned a lot of that, I think, as a player, because you, you learn more about yourself 
competing at, at you know at a high level like that because it's so challenging because the highs and lows are so extreme i think um emotionally compared to you know maybe other professions or things like that and so i learned a lot and and i i really i, I saw when i had the most success as a player was when i was carlos togata's wingman in, in toronto and then went to la and i was gary sheffield was the guy and i was his wingman and uh and when you're the wingman, it doesn't mean, you know, you're always going to perform just below the other person. It just means, like, that person has the personality type to be the leader, and you could, your personality type is to, to kind of be that, you know, person supporting him. And, and that's, and I, I like that a lot. And all of a sudden, Sheffield got traded um, to Atlanta, and I didn't have that. All of a sudden, it was me that was pushed to the spotlight. Like, okay, so it's kind of on you. And I actually, didn't like that. And I think I learned a lot from that. And I, you know, there's no reason why it's different when you, when you change, um, you know, to a different, a different arena, it's, it's still, you still have the same personality type. And that's, that's something I, I was pretty confident of that. I was, you know, not the person that wanted to, you know, to be the, the number one guy. And, and, uh, I think it's, it's been a great fit. If you ask Daniel, he would say the same thing. It's, it's, it's been a, you know, a perfect marriage in that sense. 2-1. Uh, Sean, in reading about Greenfly, I think you've been candid about you know the evolution, and, and I'm curious. Uh, I know one of the things you guys have tried to address is making the company appealing to as wide of a net without watering it down and, and making the net too wide to where it loses, you know, its essence. And, and uh, I guess what, what have you learned about trying to find that sweet spot uh, in, in growth, but not growth in the wrong direction or at the wrong rate? Yeah. I mean, we definitely leaned into, you know, sports and media and entertainment because we've had, you, you create an echo chamber in those industries. And so we, you know, right now we work with, close to 25 leagues around the world and, and individual teams separate from leagues as well. Um, anywhere from, you know, MLB to um, a smaller league, like, you know, Premier Lacrosse League or World Surf League. Like we, we work with all these where, you know, for Major League Baseball, when the players get off the field, you know, all the photos are auto-routed um, from the, you know, from the league to the teams and to the players. They have all their content, right, from that just happened in the game and they could share it and our system tracks it also. Um, that stuff works really well if you're a complicated league like Major League Baseball with a lot of, you know, three teams and a structure. And um, But it also works really well if you're, you know, the Premier Lacrosse League and you have, you know, you know not as many, you know, the resources are much smaller and, and you're, um, you, have, you know, limited capacity. You're able to, to auto-route all this content and do these things. So it works really well for both sizes. And, that, um, and then also when the pandemic hits, and, you know, the leagues are shut down. They're still using their platform and using it, you know, for distribution of, you know, older content, but also pulling content in from, from the athletes to show their workouts and things like that. So you see the usage is changes, but it's still super valuable. But now we get a lot of incoming from um, some, we call it green flag for good. So we now work with the International Red Cross and, you know, a number of charitable organizations are using us to, to collab because everyone's trying to collaborate on content. And that's, that's kind of what we've seen is it doesn't really matter, you know, if it's a, a franchise or a brand, 
you know, everyone's got the same challenges because everyone's trying to, you know, get the, the biggest bang for their buck on social and to have, you really need a tool to get content to and from, you know, the people, the voices of that brand, the advocates of that brand. And so now we've, we've leaned pretty heavily into, um, into some of the political campaigns as well as, um, as well as, um, the, the green fly for good, all the charitable organizations. And, and now we got a bunch of them that we're, that we're working with, which, which has been, you know, not only great as a business, but it's also, um, it's pretty gratifying to see that we're having an impact on, on what's going on in the world today. What, what have you learned about yourself through this process and the way it's challenged you that, that maybe, I don't know if it's that you didn't know in your, your past life as an athlete, but maybe it's just been amplified more so as an entrepreneur than when you were uh, playing baseball. Is, is there anything that kind of jumps to mind when I, I, I throw that prompt out there? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of the same, you know, a lot of the same skill sets or needs like just it's all about really it's all about the team so we have a you know we have like a close to 40 person team um and it's about getting good talent smart people um and people who are going to pull their weight and and contribute and and that's that's what we build and that's what we really focus on and and the thing and you know it's once you're once you're in the game um you know good things can happen and that's something i, I learned as a player too it's, it's like if you you could be feeling terrible at the plate, but if you're just in there and you say, you know what, today I'm just going to grind, good things could happen. And, and that's, that's, just, it's really the same type of thing. You just got to be out there and then, you know, new ideas pop up because you have great customers and they say, Oh, it'd be great if your platform enabled this. And all of a sudden you build a new feature and, and that opens up a whole new, um, a whole new vertical that can use your platform or, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and that's, those are some of the things that, I think are, are very similar. It's, it's about just the daily grind and about having great people working on the product. And, and, uh, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's pretty enjoyable to, to be able to see those types of, um, similarities and, and, and kind of something I understand really well from baseball and be able to lean into the, that same mentality in, in business. All right, Sean, last thing, uh, I guess to go back to, the baseball side. I grew up like a lot of kids wanting to, to play a, a professional sport and I'm Jewish and there aren't a lot of athletes out there, you know, who I looked up to who were and some who did some who were maybe didn't really embrace that, which was fine. There, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. You did though. Uh, you, you, and, and I don't want to say you were a Jewish baseball player cause you're a baseball player and, and, and you happen to be Jewish. I, you know, I, I don't, I don't want that to be the label, but I think there are a lot of people out there like myself who, you know, with, with the age dynamic grew up watching you and seeing that there was someone who embraced that part of who they were and, and doing what you were doing was really cool. And, and, and without trying to be dramatic, I think really important. Uh, and I, I guess I'm just curious. There are a lot of athletes who uh, choose not to embrace that. Uh, why was that important for you uh, to, again, not be your identity, but at least be a part of your story? Yeah, no, I think the, a couple things. So I always, I was a big fan as a kid. So I always, 
But as a player, I try to keep that perspective of, you know, if I was a fan, now I'm a player. And so if I was a fan, what would be really cool to experience from um, a player that I look up to? And um, I would have loved to have been able to follow a Jewish player. And so I felt like it was important um, to be a role model and, and to, to embrace that side of things. I didn't grow up in a religious household, but um, I, I was both my parents are Jewish and, and I, that's exactly how I identified, of course. And, um, and I knew there weren't too many, you know, cause I, there was a, you know, I remember Steve Stone is, was Jewish and when I was a kid and I thought that was really cool. So I, I wanted to, to embrace that and, and kind of back to the, the thought of trying to, what would be cool as a fan when I was a player, like I, when I hit a home runs in LA, I, I'd give my batting gloves out. Um, when I got back to the dugout to a kid in the stands, like that, those types of things I, I thought would were kind of cool because I would have loved that. And, and that's, that's sort of how I, I tried to, you know, play my career. And it's, it's not, a, you, know, you can't be perfect. And there's times when you can't sign autographs as long as you'd like or whatever. And, and those are sometimes you have to say no, but I always try my best to, to be there for the fans and to do those types of things. And, and then as I got to LA, I, I played in a, you know, back to the Jewish thing, I, I played in a, a big Jewish market place where Sandy Koufax, you know, obviously played. And I got to know Sandy. He'd come to spring training. I still see him when he's around different Dodger events and he's a great guy. And I go to dinner and he'd, you know, talk about it with me. And, and he said, look, you got to do what, do it. What's what you believe in, do what's right for you. And um, he was never the type to say, Oh, you know, I think you need to embrace it or, to, you know, step forward as a Jewish athlete. He's like, you know what, do what's right for you. And, and I did what, what was right for me. And, and that's, I think that was really good advice. Um, but I definitely, when I left Toronto, I wanted to go somewhere that had, you know, a strong Jewish community. And I think I was a little scared in New York um, because it was New York. I think going there in the prime of my career with the big contract and all these expectations, the Jewish player would have been, I think that would have been a tricky for my personality as, as I kind of talked about earlier, uh, it would pushed me a little too far to the front of the line. Um, and that's why I think LA was, was probably the perfect choice.